Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Hello, Fountain City Church. Please turn in your Bible to Numbers 32. The book of Numbers can be found in the first few books of your Bible or in the first few books listed in your table of contents on your whatever Bible app that you may be using. My name is Miko and I am a pastor down in the state of Florida, more specifically in the city of St. Petersburg, Florida, where the sun shines on everyone who lives, work, or plays in our city. And I've been invited by my friends well, really family, your lead pastors, Grant and Chrissy Collins, to engage you in a conversation today. And it is my honor, honestly, to do so. My history with Grant and with Chrissy runs very, very deep and long. And in fact, Grant was my best man at my wedding. Additionally, your new associate pastor, Pastor Roman and his wife, Sarah, are family to us as well. Our friendship is really deep and so very, very rich. And I tell you all of this to give a bit of credence to the following statement that I want to make to you. And that is this, your pastors love you and care about you so immensely, Fountain City Church. And I hope that you feel that daily. I hope that you feel that right now, wherever you are, even in this moment as they lend their pulpit to me today. And I come to you knowing and joining you, feeling that the cultural moment surrounding you and me and all of us over the last several months have been heavy and have been very uncertain. And the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic has heightened uncertainty over the economy and employment, finances, relationships, and of course, physical and mental and spiritual health. It has in many ways also revealed very deep fractures in our society and these fractures have been deeply felt even as we witness and grapple with the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and so many before them. Poet Celine Zabad laments, it took a pandemic to get in touch with our reality. And uh, if you're anything like me, I love to read, I love poetry, and sometimes a poem just seems to strike at a very precise moment to give us language around everything that we feel. In fact, the poem, Small Kindness by Janusha Lamaris feels utterly necessary for our current time. It goes a little like this. I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle People pull in their legs to let you by. Or how strangers still say bless you when someone sneezes a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die is what they're saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it to us, to smile at them and for them to smile back, for the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and so far from fire, 
only these brief moments of exchange? What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat, go ahead, you first, and I like your hat. It's really that last line that strikes me most. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat, or go ahead, you first, or I like your hat. This line captures, in essence, the heart of biblical justice, putting others first. You know, we seek justice in all aspects of our lives at all times even. We have sought justice from the earliest days of our youth. In fact, in reminiscing and thinking about your youth, do you remember the games we played as children? In fact, if you have children, you may hear some of the following statements a lot. Statements like, that's not fair, or you cheated, or that's against the rules, or even you can't do that. Biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and even the cosmos whole by upholding both goodness and impartiality. It stands at the center of true apprentice to Jesus. In fact, James 1.27 says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In the wisdom literature of Proverbs chapter 29, 7 says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. The prophet Micah puts it plainly that God's people are to do justice and love mercy. And while it is challenging to practice both of them at the same time, we ought to live in the practice of both. As Paul Metzger says, as those justified by faith in the God of all justice, we are to experience the wholeness that he brings and extend it as citizens of his kingdom. As we experience the wholeness that Jesus offers, we are to carry his justice forward in the world. Where there is no justice, there should not be any peace in our souls as apprentices of Jesus. A lack of justice in a space or a community or a person is an indication that the gospel has not yet settled there and that should tension us. Like I said earlier, we are grappling with a health emergency in many ways and a racial reckoning in our nation. The tendency in some Christian circles then has been to downplay social justice while highlighting personal morality. Jesus rebuked this in the Pharisees saying in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites right? Jesus is using very strong language here. He goes on to say, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And it is because of this tendency in our current cultural moments around racism that the church often looks nothing like the God it worships. 
Gandhi once quipped, if only Christians would live according to the beliefs and teachings of Jesus, we would all become Christians. And what I am finding is that we are getting tripped up on the cultural winds of society. More than moving our emotions and thought through the filter of biblical truths, we search for how our favorite news commentator might frame our feelings. In fact, they are doing so according to their own feelings. We follow people who think and tweet like us. We post flowery, pithy statements in an Instagram post. And before we know it, we are becoming who we follow, except who we are now following resembles nothing like the Jesus of Scripture. You know, if we are being honest, for many of you navigating the racial tension and race pain points of people who look like me has been pretty easy, has taken little effort. You might not find yourself in a panic taking a morning stroll through your neighborhood wondering who doesn't want you there because of the color of your skin. You've probably not had to wrestle with wondering if you'll make it home from a traffic stop. You've not felt the pain of having millions of people watch your brother's death at the hands of an authority and have so many of those spectators walk away saying he should have just complied. And I can go on and on with so many more examples. Many of you have not had to walk in any of these life experiences, and that is a privilege that you get to enjoy. And if we want to be more like Christ, we've got to understand our own privilege. But we also have to understand how others struggle in their lack of privilege. So what is privilege? Privilege is unearned access to resources or social power that are only readily available to some people because of their social group. It is an advantage or an immunity granted to or enjoyed by one societal group above and beyond the common advantage of all other groups. Imagine there's a group of people playing Monopoly. They play for one hour. By this time, all the best properties are taken and loaded up with hotels. Then you are invited to join in on the game. But starting off, you have no money. So you try to get around to pass go, right, to collect the $200. However, instead of it being a game of joy, it quickly becomes a game of fear. You pray and hope for luck to not land on a property already owned by another player, one who established their assets before you were even allowed to play. After playing a few rounds, you basically lose all that you have been able to scrape together and eventually you realize that the safest place in the game is jail. This is an analogy um, and a perfect picture of those with privilege and those without. And when left without understanding of privilege's place in society, a disunity in the body or in our communities appear and society fractures and our relationships fracture. And this brings us to our cortex of the day. The children of Israel have come full circle. They have been in the wilderness for 40 years since leaving Egypt. And about 38 and a half years earlier, they had stood at this place as children. And now their parents, uh, their parents' generation had, uh, was, was dead, and they were the adults now. 
they were faced with the same scenario as the generation before them. And that scenario was whether to go into the promised land and inherit it or not. For some, the choice was very easy, but for the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they had other thoughts. They kind of liked things where they were. Why go on? Why leave this place? So Numbers 32, stick with me. This is that account. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock and they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, they said this, verse three, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliela, Sebum, Nebo, and Bion, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. And from here, Moses recounts what happened, including the fact that God banished those living in that day to wander in the wilderness because of their disobedience in taking the land promised. He ends his storytelling, his storytelling asking the leaders of Reuben and Gad, saying in, in verse 14, And behold, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will ab again abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. Verse 16, then they came near to him and said, the people of Reuben and Gad, they came near to him and said, basically doubling down on what they originally came uh, to request. They said, we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their Place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. The leaders of Reuben and Gad were good, like really, really good. They were living on land that was suitable to the way that they wanted to live life. They had their homes, they had their livestock, like seriously, good, living it up. The rest of Israel, not so much. They had not yet found this rest. They had not yet found a place where they would be settled. 
Steve Biko, who wrote in his book, Black Consciousness and the Quest for a True Humanity, he says this, tradition has it that whenever a group of people has tasted the lovely fruits of wealth, security, and prestige, it begins to find it more comfortable to believe in the obvious lie and to accept it as normal that it alone is entitled to privilege. This is not what's happening here. The leaders of these two tribes recognize their privilege and in their desire to enjoy that privilege, they shared it with the rest of the nation by fighting for everyone to have a place where they can rest their heads and raise their families and not be afraid. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. It occurs more than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. And anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. But mishpat means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights. In fact, in Deuteronomy uh, 18, uh, the chapter directs that the priests of the tabernacle should be supported by a certain percentage of the people's income. This support is described as the priests' mishpat, which means their due or their right. Mishpat then is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. This is why if you look at every place the word is used in the Old Testament, several classes of persons continually come up. Over and over again, Mishpat describes taking up the care and cause of widows, of orphans, immigrants, and the poor, those who have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. In pre-modern agrarian societies, these four groups had no, no social power at all. They lived at the lowest level and were only days away from starvation if there was a famine, invasion if there was war, or even minor social unrest. Today, this quartet would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the houseless, and the oppressed. This mishpat or justness of society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these groups. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy or a lack of charity, but a violation of justice, a violation of mishpat. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. That is what it means to do justice. And to do justice, we must rid ourselves of hanging on to our privilege and activate the places in our souls that help us to look like the leaders of Reuben and Gad, where we say we are not at rest until we have fought and won peace and justice and true biblical life for all of us, not just our own tribes. To do justice is hard. To separate our own prejudices and biases is very, very hard. 
We don't want to fall trapped to culture. We don't want to fall trapped to our own emotions or the emotions of those around us. We don't want to fall trapped to a random flashpoint of the day or maybe the season. However, in our fear of these kind of worldly ideologies, we can miss kingdom opportunities. John Tyson in his recent book says, the gospel has not has not just personal implications, but cultural and social ones that manifest themselves in tangible and structural ways when we put it into practice. In fact, there's a branch of mathematics called game theory. If you know me, you know I'm horrible at math, but I researched this and I love this theory, so just stick with me. Game theory. This theory focuses on the strategies of dealing with competitive situations where the outcome of a participant's choice of action is wholly dependent on the actions of others. In other words, what happens to me depends on the choices that you make. Game theory can be applied to our interactions in our relationships like this. The phrase, I win, you lose. There are limited resources that we compete for. To get what I want or need, I have to take it from you. Or the phrase win-win, a win-win situation, right? With a growing awareness um, of our interconnected world, it seems harsh to care only for ourselves. But as of late, people have been reflecting on this framework. Though many are willing to help in individual situations, rarely are we willing to change the structural and power dynamics of society to help others. Win-win really means I'll help right now if it works, but not if it costs me deeply. So what if we consider a different framework? What if we considered I sacrifice, we win. In this framework, we don't just serve, we don't just give to meet an immediate need. We change the posture of our lives to give what we have accumulated in such a way that it costs us something. We sacrifice and serve to raise others up to instill peace in their lives. This framework shakes the structures in which many of us live and calls us into deeper union with the heart of Jesus for the world. Privilege is not something to be ignored or enjoyed. It is to be stewarded for the sake of others. So then what do we do with all of this information around justice and around privilege? America is obsessed, obsessed with winning. We love the direction of up, the sign of progress up and to the right on a business graph, up and coming, upper class, the upside. The prospect of progress has brought hope to many people. They are people on the rise. Yet, when progress does not happen, we feel robbed. And it's very hard for the American church to understand that our cultural privilege isn't just for our enjoyment. We have to redirect the things we possess for the sake of others. The challenge of all of this, of course, is that our culture hates down, right? We hate to downgrade or be downhearted or to down downsize or to be a downer. These are the things we avoid like 
the plague or like a pandemic. Yet Jesus redefined greatness as the distribution of our unearned cultural advantage on behalf of others. Rather than fighting over rights and responsibilities, Jesus calls us to redirect our privilege for others. Listen to Andy Crouch. He says this, the most transformative acts of our lives are likely to be the moments when we radically empty ourselves in the very settings where we would normally be expected to exercise authority. The redirection of our privilege of which you and I possess in great amounts is an opportunity for the church. It is an opportunity to seek justice. Privilege isn't a thing to be batted around in politics. It's an opportunity for followers of Jesus to serve our world today. For Jesus, sacrifice was greater than having privilege. And to follow him, well, it must be for us too. I will leave you with this. For you to move into biblical justice, you will need to do some work on your own. And I want to encourage you to posture yourself as a learner. Get together with one or two others who are of a different race, upbringing, or social class, or whatever, and I want you to have a conversation. You can start with asking someone something like, hey, would you mind sharing your story? And you can start wherever you're most comfortable. There may be parts that are uncomfortable for you, but that's the beauty of relationships. They can be messy and challenging, but the working out of that mess is what strengthens us and binds us closer. So welcome the confrontation of the uncomfortable. Then share your story. Find commonalities. It's actually in those commonalities that you get to hold kind of a peace when things get tense. Celebrate the differences and then begin to seek ways to work together to find solutions. If you are trying to live a life as apprentices of Jesus, the concept and the call to justice are inescapable. We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed. Fountain City Church, I love you and I am praying for you and your missional impact on the city of Columbus. I hope that you have an incredible Sunday worshiping and sharing and engaging in community with your family and with your neighbors. Mm -hmm.